Hey everybody, and you're listening to the High Session Toy Podcast, where we talk about everything local and beyond. I am your host, John Yamasato, and today, joining me is, of course, Kyle Shimabukuro, Mr. Devin Nakoba, hey. Dara O'Carroll, who is an okay. emergency room doctor. I'm sorry, Dara, I, I didn't get what uh, which emergency room you work out of. Uh, I'm at Kuwakini Medical Center. Kuwakini Medical Center. So... Dara came on, we're doing a special edition to talk about COVID-19, um, just to get more information out there. I know that um, there is a breadth of information online, but you know, we wanted to talk to someone who is here locally that knows what's going on in Hawaii, on Oahu, and can kind of give us some information. So Dara was, sure. uh, was nice enough to join us. So thank you so much for doing that. Uh, no problem. It's good to be here. Um, you know, uh, I, like you said, it's it's uh, it's a major issue that's here happening on Oahu, and um, be ready to answer all questions or just convey the seriousness of it. Because much like you know the early epidemics of smoking cigarettes, you know when that first came out that smoking causes cancer, there was a lot of mis. Uh, guidance about it and science that refuted it and then eventually people were like yeah okay they gave in yeah also with, with seat belts as well seat belts saved lives and there was a huge um, resistance to wearing seat belts and now that's commonplace right and so I think eventually masks are gonna be like the seat belts at some mm. point so uh, everyone's gonna get accustomed to wearing uh, wearing masks uh, if they aren't already um, but yeah, it's serious. Like we're seeing this in emergency departments. You know, there was two families where I admitted um, three members of each family and they're all deadly sick and they were all fortunately did o- are doing okay. But, um, you know, their oxygen levels were like 24% and their lungs were full of fluid. And flu doesn't do that regularly. Rarely does it do that. And these were young, healthy people. They had some risk factors, but, you know, they were in their like 50s and 60s. And flu rarely affects people that way. And so, so to connect the dots of what we're seeing in the emergency department, and it's I think it's human nature that where you don't you don't exactly understand the consequences until it affects you personally. And I don't think we want to get to the point where it affected everybody personally like it did in New York. You know, there was right, right, right. refrigerator trucks outside the hospitals because the morgue could not keep up with the amount of of, uh, of dying people. Well, I, so, think, I think what exacerbates the issues right now is no matter what subject you pick, there is going to be a, a news article you can find that's one opinion, and there's going to be a news article you can find of another opinion. Sure. And, and so it, it, it's very difficult, even though there's more information, it's difficult to sort through that information and really mm-hmm. understand what's going on. And so um, yeah, it, it, you know, it used to be where we had one or two news stations and you got the news every night. Now you have 18 million and everybody's writing blogs and it's just so confusing. Like I, I have no idea what the hell is going on. Um, and you know, there's guys like, like me or Devin or Kyle or whatever. And they say, wear the mask. So it's like, right, I'll wear the mask. Or what. But then there's people that say wear the mask and they don't want to wear the mask. And it, it is everybody's choice, but it, not, everybody doesn't have the right the same information so it's you know everyone's going to yeah. come up with different different thoughts but 
Yeah, uh-huh. long, long are the days of like Walter Cronkite, where he just presented the news, the facts, right? right like right. everything, both sides have spins, you know, and, right. and, and they dramatize, I'm not pointing fingers, I'm pointing fingers at everybody, they dramatize their faves. But, you know, it's really hard to opine science mm-hmm. because there's good science and there's bad science. And that's what a lot, that's what scientists and medical physicians are trained to look at is to study the science. Like one, is that study studying accurately what it says? Two, is it has the same um, population base that it needs to test? And three, is it valid? Like have the science, is the scientific method actually valid in that study? And we can see that in hydroxychloroquine that everything that came out on that, on that drug, uh, every positive test was an invalid study. For one, the last one that came out of the Henry Ford uh, system, uh, they had skewed populations. So they said, hey, look, option A is going to get nothing. Option B is going to get just hydroxychloroquine. Option C is going to get hydroxychloroquine plus azithromycin, which is another, it's an antibiotic, but it's been proposed to work for, for, uh, for COVID-19. And you would think between all A, B, and C, right, just logically, like the groups that you're testing on A, B, and C have to be the same age, same gender, same amount of comorbidities, and they weren't. Like the option A, the group that got no hydroxychloroquine was on average a lot older. And that group also got a lot of more dexamethasone. And dexamethasone is a steroid that we do know for sure works against uh, COVID-19. It's not a bulletproof, but it helps decrease the mortality rate of those who are the sickest. And so you can't draw any conclusion out of that study simply because of those two facts. And so that's what a lot of doctors are pushing, but like they're not looking at the science. They're, they're not looking at the validity of the studies. Well, those, so that's, what, that's what's frustrating in, in for true evidence-based physicians who are not just, and I have to say it, they're not being political. So, so that, that's what's frustrating in my mind. I was going to say that um, if I were, if, because, uh, by the way, when we had Dr. Jill on, I got, I got messages, you know, from people. What did you not ask about this? And one of the things was the hydroxychloroquine. We didn't ask her about that, you know. Sure. But uh, they would say, well, it's supposed to be hydroxychloroquine and zinc because zinc is the thing that kills the virus or whatever. And it's supposed to, it depends on when you give it and all that kind of stuff. And mm-hmm. honestly, I, I don't know if any – do you feel like – because we're only five months into this. Is it, is it really at this point um, – any, any, it, it's hard to tell anything, right? That it's definitive if it works or not. No, no, no with hydroxychloroquine, there's been quite a few studies now at this point. And we, there's something called in medicine called equipoise. Equipoise being option A and option B have equal chance we're studying this and each of them have equal chance of actually succeeding. Okay. And so once you start getting so much data that option A is worse, like it becomes unethical to keep studying it. And we, we're to that point. We've lost the point of equipoise that does hydroxychloroquine actually work because we do know it causes harm because it can increase, it causes an electrical abnormality in your heart and it can increase the rates of fatal heart, heart arrhythmia. And there was an increased risk of death, overall death in, in the several studies that um, were giving hydroxychloroquine for treatment. We should, we've seen that it doesn't actually help with prophylaxis. We've seen that it doesn't help prophylaxis meaning from contracting this disease. I wish, I wish it worked because it's a medication that we have a lot of and then we've stockpiled and we know the safety parameters because it's, so, it's been around since the 40s or 50s. 
I wish it worked, but I'm not, you know, I think the, the litmus test, which I, I, I think uh, exact same line I, I was telling Devin is like, would I give it to my family? No, absolutely not. Mm. Um, and so I think hydroxychloroquine is boom out of, out the window. So there's some, there are some uh, new medications like monoclonal antibodies, uh, which are basically they're genetically engineered uh, antibody that can, you get an IV infusion from it and it'll last for about three to four months. And they can be given to those who are highest at risk or um, frontline medical workers. And those should be coming into the pike and should be a bridge to vaccinations. You can think of it as that, as a bridge to when vaccinations come, uh, hopefully by maybe end of September, October. And so there's a lot of good um, companies, several different monocle antibodies that are being made. Okay. So that, yeah. that's, uh, so that, that would just like lower symptoms, I guess. Could prevent contraction of disease completely because it would, if the virus gets into you, the antibodies, think of them as like kind of, they look like Y's, okay. kind of like big Y's. They would like attach the virus and surround it. And so the virus couldn't get into a cell. Like oh, of, interesting. Yep. Yeah. Uh, how, how is that? Um, sorry, I, I, we're getting, I'm getting sidetracked here, but, but uh, what about the steroids and, and whatnot? I always thought sure. when yeah. I, I, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. I was just going to say, I used to get, uh, when I used to get the flu or a cough, or I, I used to get a lot of these uh, respiratory illness kind of stuff. And um, so then the doctor finally gave me Advair. And mm -hmm. so whenever I get a kind of a bad cough, it's an inhalable steroid. I take that and sure. that helps out a lot, you know? So um, sure. uh, any, any of those kind of things? I, I guess I guess the general question is that anything helping? <laughs> like anything? Yeah, yeah so, so, so the thing that's probably helping the most is, um, dexamethasone, which is a uh, either a can be an oral, could be an injection steroid, or could be an IV steroid, and that's only for it's not for people who have mild symptoms. Um, it's only for people who uh, because the people who have mild symptoms it showed to actually be worse, uh, cause some side effects, and actually didn't help the course of illness. But those who are sick enough to be admitted to the hospital who require oxygen, or who um, are perhaps on a ventilator or really ill, dexamethasone decreases their mortality rate by up to 30%, which is huge. And, and so, you know, the mortality rates when this disease first started coming out were in the, you know, if you're on a ventilator, like 80%. So right, really right, good. right. Yeah. So what, what we think it does is it's a potent anti-inflammatory. And that's how Advair is working for you when you take it in a cough. Um, that's an inhaled steroid. This is much different. Inhaled, they're studying inhaled steroids, but they don't seem to be showing as much uh, effect. Because this virus doesn't just affect your lungs, it affects everything. It's almost like a potent, the virus causes inflammation everywhere, you know, in your kidneys, in your heart, can cause it in your heart, in your uh, intestines, in your liver. So you need something that disperses more than just the lungs. So dexamethasone, uh, I'm not sure if you guys have heard the term, the uh, cytok um, cytokine storm. Basically this yeah. virus gets into your body and it causes, this, a cytokine is basically a chemical messenger that causes inflammation and it causes just a huge release of cytokines. And that's where you start getting inflammation in your lungs, the fluid fills up, you can get inflammation in your heart, your heart stops working properly, um, liver as well, and then your kidneys. And what you don't want is multiple of your organs to start being affected because that's when you really, really start getting really ill. And so dexamethasone can, can stop that cascade of cytokine storm from happening. So that's one. And then uh, a lot of people have heard of remdesivir, which is a, uh, uh, he was originally formulated to fight against Ebola and that's been shown to be a, a lot weaker effect, but there's some positive effect where 
it decreases time of hospitalization in the sickest of the sick from 14 days to about 11 days. Interestingly, there's an oral form of remdesivir. It starts with an F and I can't pronounce it. A lot of these drugs have really long names. Uh, it took me a while to get remdesivir under my tongue as well. But uh, remdesivir is only IV simply because the, your, your, the biomechanics of the drug, you couldn't in, your stomach couldn't ingest it properly in, in enough dosage to be efficacious. So they're now working on an F form of remdesivir that's going to be oral. Um, so the studies are ongoing on that and that, 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 that could help. Um, just for it to be more um, available in third world countries where you may not have IVs, it's easily shippable, amnesivir, you know, there's some refrigeration issues as well. So those are the two main things that are working now. There's a lot of other drugs um, that are being investigated, but when somebody comes into the emergency department other and gets admitted to the hospital, those two, plus because of the anti, the inflammation is so large in, these, in people who are highly affected, um, it can predispose to clotting. So, um, you know, Clotting will cause, there's a lot of people who are having increased heart attacks when they get COVID. A lot of people who are having strokes, young people, you know, they're not really having bad symptoms and they just show up with a stroke. Terrible. Um, or even clotting off the IVs or the big dialysis catheters that we have. So the one other thing that we give is potent um, anti-clotting medications. And then lastly, convalescent plasma, which basically is, uh, say Devin got this and he recovered, we would draw out some of his plasma, which is kind of the liquid part of blood, not the red blood cells. And it has all the antibodies and white blood cells in it. And so theoretically, he would have antibodies to this virus and we would give it to say, say you, John, if you start getting really sick. And people who, um, who get convalescent plasma are the sickest of the sick because we don't have a lot of it. It's very expensive. Um, and I would say in the tiers of things that work, you would go dexamethasone, remdesivir, convalescent plasma. So those are the three kind of things we have. I know you've been, this is actually a day off, right? That you're sitting here yeah, talking to us. Yeah. So have you been working just basically around the clock or, um, how, how are the, how are the emergency rooms? Do you, do you, I, I know you're definitely feeling the, the strain at this point yeah. a little bit, but, uh, do you feel like we're, um, heading to, to, uh, uncomfortable levels or, or, it's Absolutely. Um, and that started two, two to three weeks ago. Um, wow. and so I'm really happy that you know, this is an hour or two hours after that press conference where we increased our, our restrictions, where everybody should be staying at home if they can. Um, I, I'm happy about that because, uh, like I said uh, uh, on Devin's show, is that I admitted a couple of families that had three people sick from each family, like deathly sick. And this should be on the news every day. This, the simple stat that Pacific Islanders make up 4% of our population, yet make are a third of our overall infections. And that's, that's terrible. And because they're one at the highest risk of succumbing from this illness because they have higher rates of, just because of their socioeconomic status. And we're talking about mostly Marshallese, Micro, Micronesians, and people from Palau, all the Kofa nations. Um, you know, they have lower socioeconomic sta status, they have less access to health care, they have higher rates of um, obesity, diabetes, hypertension that predispose to worse outcomes. And so these worse outcomes are causing them to stay in the hospital longer. And then also they they're, live in large households. And so one person gets sick and it just spreads like wildfire. And so uh, I guarantee you if a third of the infections were in Kahala or Portlock 
or why uh, like Iki or something like that. There might be a different story to this, which is, is uh, what we saw on the mainland as well. You know, lower socioeconomic status or, or increased rates of, of this disease. And so I'm seeing a lot of that. Um, you know, it's a it's an increased burden on our healthcare workers, our nurses, and our physicians as well. Like you know, having to wear masks all the time, which is one uncomfortable. But these are the N95s that really kind of dig into your face. Um, and two, it puts a little bit higher stress because you know that you could succumb to this illness. We're, uh, I think, three times at higher risk of succumbing to this illness compared to the regular population. And, and um, you know, our families um, as well. So, so it's, it's, it's real and it's hitting us hard. And um, uh, everybody needs to do what they can at home to, 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 to combat this. And one of the simple three things are don't gather in large groups, wear your masks and, and um, uh, wash your hands. And, uh, you know, we can get into masks if you want, but every single study that's come out has shown that masks, um, just you can think of the physics of this disease, that it's a respiratory disease where predominantly it's spread by droplets and aerosols. And so the masks keep those inside and from spreading out into the environment. And now if it's not just thinking about other people that you're worried about, thinking about yourself, it decreases the viral load that you actually ingest. And so there's a higher chance that you're going to have a milder course if you're wearing a mask. So there's two reasons, protect those you love, protect the, your community, um, and also protect yourself. So there's like really, really no reason not to wear a mask. You know, and there's, there's a lot of controversy recently with certain types of masks that is not as effective. Yep. Um, can we go into detail with what you think is effective and not effective? I know there's a lot of people at home running out to fabric stores and making their own homemade yep. masks instead of getting N95s. There's also a gator controversy now too, which is those um, spandex pullover kind of um, protection. Um, how do you feel about those and, the, and its effectiveness? Yeah, we'll, we'll start with the gators. Um, they, they feel, so that study came out of, I think it was either Duke University or there's another one from Florida Central University. Um, they, they were both studying sort of the same things. The, the gators actually, uh, when you do cough or you do talk, it actually, breaks up the large droplets that would otherwise sink down to the ground and actually causes them to be smaller and hang out in the air longer. And so that's what happened with it actually increased the mystifying. I would call it the mystifying. What is, what is, the ga what is a gator mask? I, I don't know what that is. What, the one that a lot of fishermen use. It's kind of like a scarf that's elastic. Oh, like oh and then they pull it up like, the, like this? Pull it up, yes, exactly. Oh, oh. Kind of like a sun shield. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Now, okay. I, one of the things with the gators you can fold it over and double layer it. Yeah. Would that help or is that? That would, that would definitely help. Yeah, so that's one thing they didn't test. And yeah. so the, the other thing they tested is like the cotton mask did okay, but as you put more layers into the cotton mask, it improved its efficacy. And then also the regular surgical masks, you know, those just those blue ones also showed to be pretty, pretty darn good. Like not quite as good as the N95s, but the N95s only really work if they fit onto your your face and so there's some n95s that don't fit online there's some n95s that fit me and not other people and so to to um go out and rush to get an n95 i think is absolutely overkill and it'll cost more and actually not work like a proper n95 so i think the best bet for people out in the public is if you can get to the surgical masks you know the level one ones that you see the blue ones those do really really well well you can even test it yourself if you like hold up a flame or a lighter or a candle and you try and blow and the lighter could be right here. It's not going to have enough air. So it's doing really, really well. Um, mm. the, the, the main thing is that you're wearing some type of cover. 
uh, hopefully multiple layers, and then changing it every couple of days because if you're not changing it or not having multiple masks in your kind of armory, you know, there can be like bacteria and mold that grow on those. And if you do have lung diseases like COPD or predisposed to other lung issues, that can be another nidus for, a, you know, not coronavirus, but a different infection. So, yeah. What I like to do is, is throw the mask on my dashboard. You know, the yeah, sun, the UV, yeah, the UV light kills it. So. Yeah. Okay. Um, do, do, another do, thing I've been seeing recently is politicians wearing the face shield now, the plastic, the plastic I guess they want to, um, Devin has, Devin has Star Wars themes face shields. I wanted to know how effective is this over a mask. Now, <laughs> it's a little bit of a stormtrooper, but I mean, that kind of face shield. Good. That's oh, really good. Um, yeah, so, so what's going to happen there is all those uh, respiratory droplets are going to go down, and if they're light enough or small enough or even, there is a significant portion, and we don't know how much is actually aerosolized. So when you hear somebody say this is air, uh, airborne, I would say yes, I would agree that this virus is airborne. There's a portion of, uh, of infections that are transferred just from these light little kind of viral particles that are just floating out in, into whatever room you're in. So that would not, Devin's mask would not keep that from happening. Um, uh, face shields, what I have to wear in the ERs, I have to wear eye covering and I usually wear like glasses plus a face shield on top. Um, simply because, I mean, this is, kind of bananas to me that every time I think about it, that this virus is so transmissible, uh, way more transmissible than flu, nearly two to three times more transmissible that I have to wear eye covering because it can affect any mucous membrane and your eyes being a mucous membrane. So the virus can actually get into your eyes. If you wanted to be ultra, ultra cautious, yes, you could go around wearing the stormtrooper mask. Plus I would put a mask underneath that or goggles or some sort, or even, you know, wrap around sunglasses if you're outside. Um, even though we shouldn't be kept congregating outside, uh, or we can't at this point, but that would be um, a way to be increase your uh, safety measures. So that is, uh, as I said, bananas to me that I've never worked around a virus that's that transmissible, and so it's it's well, kind of crazy. I don't think the general public actually knew, or I know I didn't know that you know wearing glasses would even protect you too, because I wouldn't, I didn't even think about the mucus membrane it affecting your eyes and getting sick that way. Yep. If you want to just wear sunglasses and regular glasses all day long now. That can, can be cool, Kyle. You can wear your glasses at night. <laughs> yeah. Sunglasses at night. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's a good song as well. I wear my sunglasses <laughs> at night. So. Um, but yeah, so, so flu, that's one way that flu gets in, can get into your, your, your system as well, is that usually flu, you get it on your hands and you rub your eyes. And then that's how it gets in. But this virus is so transmissible, it doesn't need that extra step. And, you know, um, recently I had a friend that um, came into contact with somebody that possibly came into contact. And what do you do in that kind of situation? Do you just... You can, you can say who that was, Kyle. <laughs> why, why, don't, why don't you say, John? <laughs> All right. So, so uh, I was somewhere with somebody. In a, yeah. in a close, only the two of us were in a closed space. And, and um, as I was driving home, I got a text saying that uh, that person had been in contact with someone who had just tested positive for coronavirus. Yeah. So um, what I did was uh, I came home and I, every, everyone vacated my bedroom, my master bedroom. I came mm -hmm. straight into the house, went into the master bedroom, and there I sat for two days until uh, he, he went and got a test. 
and he ended up testing negative. And and the person that he had um, been in contact with that tested positive was it was a few days. You know, it was a few days in. It wasn't. You sure. know, like a, yeah. So once he tested negative, I came up, but I was trying to self-quarantine myself ahead of time so that, um, you know, in case he tested positive, then I, I'd be, I wouldn't have had any contact with anybody else, you know? That's really That's responsible. I think it was the absolutely right thing to do. Okay. I was going to say, but was that too extreme? No, 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 no. I, that's what I would have advised. I would have been like, oh man, he should have, but thank, thankfully, yeah, you did. Uh, because, you know, there's a huge percentage of people that are asymptomatic, meaning yeah. they have no symptoms. And then there's a further percentage that are also like kind of uh, palsy symptomatic, P-A-U-C-I, uh, meaning they barely have symptoms. And you, only when you ask them, they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, I guess I, you know, I guess I had a little stuffy nose or my throat was a little scratchy. Um, the numbers are staggering that under, there was one study in, uh, from Italy that the, the age group under 60 years old, 70, I think 74% of them everybody under 60 were asymptomatic. That's mm. crazy. So you could have this virus and we now know, we knew before somewhat, but we do know that just because you're asymptomatic doesn't mean you're not going to transfer this virus. Right. Because you're not coughing and you're not sneezing, you're doing it a little bit less, but you're still shedding virus as you're talking. Everybody's been to, you know, been to a bar or been to a party where somebody's had a, a few too many drinks and you know they're like, you're getting the weather you know don't i want i want the news not the weather right and so yeah. that's what happens in normal speech there is respiratory and saliva droplets just as i'm talking and you guys are talking and so if you have the virus you're asymptomatic you're spreading it and so that's what you could have been and thank you for recognizing that and uh, doing your due diligence and isolating until you had um, a, a better idea I love that. He was going crazy. So he's like, oh, as soon as he gets a negative, I'm out of here. I don't give that much credit because he was like, no, nah, I'm out of here, man. <laughs> One of the conversations that we've been having because of that situation, the three of us, was that the person got tested once when he was asymptomatic. Should he have got tested again later on to see – because if John went out – after his first test negative and he tests again and he's positive, then mm -hmm. John is still exposed, right? Like sure. John, Os John Osura, right? Who was the, the um, playing for Seattle Seahawks, just played for UH, tested mm -hmm. positive. So they pulled him out of practice and he had to isolate. The NFL makes him take two more, two more uh, tests, right? Mm -hmm. And if it's a positive and a positive, they're definitely out. If it's positive and negative, you're still out. But the mm. two tests he took afterwards were negative, so he mm. went back into practice, mm -hmm. which means that the test itself is not really accurate. Am I correct? Uh, it is accurate, but it is – you can think of it like a – and you're onto something here. I, I like your thinking, Bo, is that um, it's not – depending on where you are in the course of this disease, uh, it's like a pregnancy test in that – a pregnancy test, you do not flag positive in the first two to three weeks, right? You need the time for that pregnancy hormone to come up. And just like this virus, where the average incubation period or the time from when you contract this virus to the time either you display symptoms or most young people aren't going to have, the majority of young people aren't going to have symptoms, but the time for when uh, you display symptoms is about five or six days. Your, your uh, viral load actually peaks two to two and a half days before you start having symptoms. So you are infectious. If you go on to have symptoms, you're infectious before um, uh, before you have them. 
And so you need to time this, the test, even in the, our most sensitive tests, you know, those swabs, like, have you, have any of you guys had a test yet? Not yet. Yeah, it tickles <laughs> all, all the way back here and it makes your eyes water. It makes you want to sneeze. It's fine. Like it's doable. Anything's doable for five to 10 seconds, but it's not comfortable, but it goes all the way back there. And our most sensitive tests in the first three days of illness, because like a pregnancy test, the viral level hasn't gone high enough. They're useless. They're like almost useless on the on day three you see a little bit of efficacy but it's really on day four or five and it peaks at day eight of contraction of the virus where they're the most efficacious so probably if i was to hypothesize ursua had was at the tail end of his asymptomatic viral loads and he tested positive and then after day two day three his viral loads were dropping and they were like, okay, you don't have enough virus in your body that we can test. So you're therefore not infectious to other people. And so that's a testing way of testing people, uh, of, of releasing people from isolation. We now know and we've studied enough that um, if you have mild symptoms, uh, the CDC is released really, really rigorous. And they, I went through all of the studies. It was almost like 20 studies that they listed to make these guidelines is that if you have mild symptoms, uh, 10 days from the start of your symptoms, if you're still having a little cough, a little runny nose, but you're not actually having a fever, they say you can be released from isolation. But by far and large, if you just have mild symptoms, you're going to be done by you know day six, day seven at most. But if, if you start having moderate symptoms or you, need chest, you, know, you have chest pain, shortness of breath, then they say isolate for 20 days. So if you just have a mild course, it feels like a, you know, one day of fever, it feels like a flu hits you for a little while, you feel better. 10 days from the start of your symptoms, as long as you're not still having fever, you're good to go and, and um, you don't need to retest. So then I would say, Devin, is that when, when my friend got his test, it was five or six days since he had been exposed. So he mm -hmm. should have had enough viral load that when he got tested, if it's positive, you know, he would have had a, a good positive or negative. So mm -hmm. I didn't have to uh, be in the sure. insane asylum for another two weeks. So you uh, wouldn't have to wait for it. didn't mention that part. So, you know. <laughs> I did. But then again, to throw a little caveat in there, that's average, right? Everybody's different. That's right. the, the incubation period can be as high as 14 days. There's some people, you know, there's been reports of it as high as like 21 days or even as short as one to two days. So, you know, think of it as a bell curve. 95% of people fit in that middle of the bell curve, but there's still two and a half percent on each side that are outliers. Think of it that way. So, so uh, Dr. O I'm going to call you Dr. O'Carroll from here on out. Dr. <laughs> O'Carroll, so uh, are there any things that we can, so, so Dev, myself, and, and Kyle, we've been, you know, we've been pretty careful going to work, but not trying to, you know, obviously we're not going into any raves or anything yeah. right now. But um, is there anything we can be doing as far as like, um, you know, they talk about vitamin D, taking vitamin D or eating, eating something or exercise. I mean, are there certain things that we can do that, um, because it just seems so random who gets real sick? I mean, yeah, there's they're, certain, they're, they are studying that and it does seem really random. Um, there are some genetic deep, uh, uh, dispositions to getting worse. We don't know for sure what they are, but we feel that it's linked one to um, – so how this virus gets into your body is the ACE2 receptor. Think of it as just like where the virus kind of links in and it gets looped into the body. It's, it's a receptor in your lungs. 
And there's a, they think that there's a certain type of receptor that, you know, I don't know how many proportion of the people have uh, in the world because they don't know the answer to that, that can actually predispose to worse infections. Uh, and then two, there's a um, possibly, uh, there's been reports of um, blood type being predisposing to worse uh, infections, blood type being O being pr protective and blood type A being less protective. But it, it's not really the blood type, it's that right next to the blood type, there is a, a gene that codes for some of those inflammation cytokine responses. One is interleukin-6, and they think that there's a certain gene that some people have that codes for a certain type of interleukin-6 that actually makes it work, the disease worse. So uh, to answer that question, there are people who are really looking at the genetics of this really interesting and really kind of actually really tough studies to wrap my head around because they're so so detailed but they're looking at it um but what can you do is one if you have any vices like smoking drinking you know cut cut down on them or eliminate them because that'll help just in general be, have you be healthier eat a well-balanced diet here in hawaii because we're in the tropic zone um nobody's vitamin d deficient so that's something that you worry about either in your the higher latitudes in the winter months. So um, uh, I wouldn't take any excess vitamin D or vitamin C. If you want to take a, 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 a kind of all-in-one supplement, that's not a bad thing to take. But you can if take too, you know, it just causes, if you take too many vitamins, it just causes really expensive uh, shishi. You know, mm -hmm. <laughs> you just look at it draining into the toilet. So just eat a well-balanced diet. With regards to exercise, there is a period when you do really, really intense exercise, like I'm talking about like getting your ass kicked for an hour, um, where you have a kind of your immune system gets a little bit quiet. Because what happens is like, think about it, if you're like doing heavy, heavy, I think of squats, I don't do many squats anymore, but like, the, you know, that burn that you feel in your muscle? Yeah, that's actually your muscles wanting to explode, to put it for lack, lack of a better word. And so your body actually secretes um, other chemical messengers, anti-inflammatory ones that tell it to like, hey, cool off, don't worry, like we're gonna rest, but don't explode right now. And so when you stop doing those squats, those anti-inflammatories um, circulate throughout your whole body. And I know we, I've said that anti, that pro-inflammation and inflammation is bad, but when you act, are actually being exposed to this virus, you want some of that inflammation response for your cells to corner the virus and kill it. What you don't want is that response to get out of hand. So what it does is really, really heavy exercise causes you to be for about 24 hours predisposed to all types of infections. I see. And then, and then lastly, I would try and limit stress because we know cortisol uh, is a stress hormone, and we know our immune responses actually go down as you as stress response or cortisol goes up. If any of you are, ever, are into like uh, those uh, mindfulness uh, meditation apps like Headspace or Calm, you know those have actually been shown to decrease cortisol, which will increase your immune response. Oh, interesting. Okay. <laughs> what, what, what? I've been really quiet because we've I've talked to you twice already in the studio, so I'm just letting them ask all of their questions. <laughs> we can get all well, 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 What are we, we argue about this every single time that we're talking? These <laughs> things. Well, well the, the, the dynamic here is whatever Devin says, Kyle feels like he has to, to oppose it to get some kind of uh, argument going, right? Well, and then so- well, I know, I know, I, have, I, I okay. do have one question. Because right. uh, Kyle and I were talking about this and, and we've, been, we've been kicking it around. But um, 
initially, uh, when they were talking with uh, Fauci about masks, no masks, yes masks, all mm -hmm. of the stuff, my contention to him was at the beginning of all of this stuff. What? I don't know what John's laughing about. The, no, because you guys are arguing about this on, on text yeah, the other night. Well, no, because at, at the beginning of this, as with everything, or especially with this disease, a lot wasn't known. So they were going off the best information that they had possible to tell you what to do. Sure. Um, Al's contention was, just tell us what I'm asked, tell us not to what I'm asked, make up your mind, but don't lie to us. Yeah. So, and, and I get it. I, I understood completely what he was saying. Um, but my thing was, you know, they're still trying to figure this out. The science of it is not complete yet. So yeah. um, there's going to be some places where they're going to tell you, go this direction and then go, okay, wait, hold on a second. Yeah. Maybe not that. Yep. Yeah. That's a scientific method. You have a hypothesis, you test it. I was actually right there with Dr. Fauci when I was like, should, should I tell my patients and the public to be wearing masks and all the evidence that I had up to that point, And this is with a different virus. This is a completely new virus was with influenza. We think that that models the same sort of transmission the best. We know that this virus is two to three times as transmissible as influenza. So not everything applies. And so there was one study where um, people, the hospital workers in Thailand from 2015, they randomized them to no masks or cloth masks. And the people with cloth masks, and this is in a healthcare setting, contracted more influenza than the ones who didn't. And so from there, that's why we were hypothesizing that, hey, look, there's got to be something with the putting on of a mask or taking off of a mask where people get the flu on their hands or they, you know, it, it, something about that mechanism makes it worse. But we've shown now, so that's where that initial recommendation came from. And it wasn't to people say, oh, you know, the just healthcare workers wanted to save masks and that and that sort of thing. No, the very first thing that we take, the very first part of the the oath we take in medical school is to do no harm. So we would never advocate for anything to do uh, any harm. So uh, in that light, as Devin said, as we started studying more and seeing how transmissible this virus was, where it was going. We said, hey, look, masks are, you know, saving lots of lives, so let's do it. Um, and everybody's, you know, the more we study, the more we know about masks. Um, it's just overwhelmingly, you know, people have said if 95% uh, of people were to wear masks, we'd have a control of this virus in, in the nation. You know, the mainland's for, for I think, is going to be a super spreader continent for, for many years because there's just – it's too hocus pocus or uh, too um, hokey pokey. You know, there's one state maybe doing it really well and then another state doesn't. At least here in Hawaii, we have the benefit of being um, isolated and we can kind of control. And the whole big topic on like, did we control it well enough? <laughs> but we can at least control our destiny. So do you see, um, I know that recently cases have been coming down, but do you see it uh, still trending that way? Or do you, are, are you hopeful and um, what's yeah. been going on? Yeah, and, um, you know, I, I, would, I would hate to look, to look at the cases as, as a, like a weather report, you know? Um, it's like fair weather judgment. Like you need to look at the trends. And so it'd be really rare, extremely rare to have 200, three, you know, 300 cases and all of a sudden just, you know, the curve goes like it's mm -hmm. a pyramid. Like that usually doesn't happen. There's usually a flattening and then a down. I, I would call it cautiously op optimistic that for the last two days, our cases have decreased. Our positivity rate is still really high. Um, one other thing to look at is, and it's almost, is more when the viral loads are a little bit lower, but when you have a higher percentage of people who are 
known cases, knowing we know where they came from, we're able to contact trace them. If you have a higher percentage of unknown cases, that means more community spread. That will predispose to knowing to one to two weeks later, more hospitalizations and more cases. And that was, that's what we've seen. And almost all of the cases in the last two to three weeks are untraceable because it's just too late at this point, unfortunately. Oh, wow. And, um, you know, there's been a lot said about uh, our contact tracing capabilities. And we should have had, the Department of Health should have had an easy way to onboard really quickly um, more contact tracers. Back in May, you know, we were having lots of days of zero cases, a couple of mm -hmm. cases here and there. We didn't need that, you know, a huge amount. But there should have been an easy way to onboard because onboarding these, these contact tracers is not just the contact tracers themselves. It's like the, the computer stations. It's the, the, the data that you have to collect. Like if you just contact trace without inputting the data, it's pretty much useless. And then you have the investigators along with them. So, so it, it's, there should have been an easy way to just kind of, you know, like add on um, more, you know, pockets or more, they should have just been waiting in the wings really. And so that, that's a fault. Um, that I think everybody's pointed out and I don't need to like keep wagging my finger at it. And then one, one thing that I, 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 they're working on now and should have been in place a little bit earlier was where can people adequately isolate? You know, there was mm. a lot of people that, I, um, you know, live in these large family homes and they, you know, they don't have a mat of, you know, you're fortunate to have a master bedroom. You could have locked your way yourself away in, but a lot of people don't have that luxury. Uh, or they have to go to work or they have to pay, you know, they have to go and still make a living. And so isolation is just not possible. And so there wasn't enough of those rooms. And so now there's more hotels and there's more buildings that they're bringing online because those got full and there was no place to put anybody else. So they're bringing more of those online. And then the last piece that I think has been completely lacking is adequate public messaging. Like there should be like on the radio, on the TV, in every single language, English, um, mm. Tagalog, Basayan, um, and Chinese, and Japanese. There should be every single language. There should be PSAs going on. Um, uh, and I, I, you know, we're five to six months into this pandemic, and I haven't seen any adequate public health messaging. There's been some emails from the Department of Health, but nothing that's like big swathing. And, and you know, that is a really good point. I mean, all the information that I've ever got on this thing is from self. Um, like, I had to go look it up somewhere, right? There's there's no nothing coming at us that that's giving info. I guess Caldwell does his uh, daily text or whatever. But what is this that? is the this is the spot I have to read tomorrow. Oh, oh yeah, <laughs> I see. Uh, talking about talking about. I should that. say I should it's say except for, except for Devin. Yeah. Devin. No, no, no. It's not no. It's not just except for me. I mean, this is this is something that the city and colony is having us put out. So every. Every radio station in our cluster is having to read this thing and they're going to put it out on the air. And it's funny because I got it this morning. And so as I was reading it, the language of it says the stay at home order will give us the chance to beat COVID-19. And I went, wait a second. Uh, um, <laughs> I think I'm knowing something here a little earlier than everybody else. Because this see, came I... to me at like, I don't know, 830 in the morning. So I went, oh, okay, well. So, so this is the first, right, Devin? This, this, they haven't sent they haven't sent you anything like this before. No, this is the first time we're getting this. Um, everything else that we've gotten, uh, or things that we've done, like it was our station telling people, please put yeah. on your mask, stay home, you know, yeah. that kind of thing. So this is the first time we're getting something that's okay. City and County saying, stay home, don't wear masks. Mm -hmm. Oh, I'm sorry, not don't wear masks, but you know, wear a mask. <laughs> 
um, sorry, uh, the 15, the 15 second basically says we're in lockdown now so we can return to the life we love sooner. We're Hawaii. We have Aloha. We protect each other. Get the details at oneoahu.org. Public service message from 94.7 Kumu and the sitting county of Honolulu. Great. Well, I'm happy that it's starting, but it's you know, like like I just it's said. It's late. Yeah. Yeah. Late. Like that should have been uh, way earlier. And I'm, I'm not pointing the finger at those who work at the Department of Health. I think it's a combination of um, there wasn't enough aggressiveness, but two, I think they were set up to fail. Like it was an underfunded and undermanned department. And so I, I, I think whoever was in there may have fared similarly, maybe not quite as floundering, but I think uh, it was set up to fail and there should have been more support. Well, well, when Dr. Jill was on uh, the other week, I asked her, um, so when did you sign up for this job? And she said, oh, five <laughs> years ago. And I'm, well, so obviously you didn't sign up to be this, this like, you know, she didn't sign up for this, right? I mean, I don't think anyone, was yeah. in it to to handle i mean even you right i think you, you're going to be an er doc and uh I, I don't think you were thinking oh yeah i'm going to be in the next uh worldwide sure. pandemic 100 year pandemic yep. or whatever yeah and so i mean that's what pandemics and uh, that's how they happen they come up uh, out of nowhere but we should we should have had some sort of um more uh wherewithal in that you know 2003 we had sars og the first sars mm -hmm. 2009 we had um you know, uh, swine flu, and a couple of other flu, bird flus in there. And then 2013 and 14, MERS is still, MERS is still active, Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome. That bubbles out of Saudi Arabia. There's a couple cases every month. That is like, that's got a way higher mortality rate. That has a mortality rate in the 40s, like 30s to 40s. Thankfully, it's not as transmissible. Um, you don't have, you have to have symptoms to transfer MERS and also the original SARS. That's what makes this virus so unique is that, you have that pre-symptomatic or asymptomatic spread, and that's what's caused it to just go globally. Well, you know, I, I'm sorry. I, I I thought about one more um, one more thing when I was in my isolation. Okay, so so I go into my my room, <laughs> right? And uh, over the course of a couple of days, my wife brought a. She, Is it G-rated? Yeah, yeah, no, no, <laughs> yeah, G-rated, G-rated. Right. So she brought a. She would bring me a plate, and she'd just knock on the door, and then they. Go out and open the door. I get my plate. Come in, eat my dinner. You know, on the dresser or whatever. And then, um, so I had maybe like a couple of days worth of dishes, and I had a cooler because she she pushed in a cooler, and uh, had some drinks in there so I could you know get a soda if I wanted. You know, good 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 wife. She's a good wife. Yeah. Right. And then so one day they they went to the North Shore and they left me at home. So I'm stuck at home all by myself, but they're all at the beach or whatever. You know. And so I told Kai, I said, Oh, I'm gonna. So I, I, I got out of I got out of the room. I went straight downstairs and I went into the front yard and I took all the plates that I had collected all the and I put it out in the yard so that it would it would bake in the sun. And then I wiped all the handles down and I went back in the house. I went back into my room, closed the door, and I stayed there. I kind of just saying, so I said, I said, what you did that for? And I'm like, well, the sun it kills the virus, so I could put everything in the sun so that when she comes home, she is like, oh, you just don't want to do dishes. <laughs> I'm like, no, I don't want to spend a whole bunch of time downstairs touching everything. And so, so was I right to, to that put was in clever. That was clever. Thank you. I, I give you that. I give you that. But you could have also just washed the dishes. <laughs> <laughs> I told you. I told you just wash the dishes. Soap and water kills this virus. So, uh, yeah, you could have just washed the dishes. But I get it. Like if you, you know, 
you don't want to touch everything around there and also like you're you're um I'm breathing all over the place. Yeah, like I get it. Like, yeah, that was I, a- all I told them was I said, put on a mask and wash the dishes. Oh, it was Devin. Okay, sorry, it was Devin. That was <laughs> I was like, when do you tell me this? I don't yeah, know. No, no, you're, telling, you're telling me that's so all I was like, you talked to Kyle too? I was like, no, <laughs> no we had this we had sorry, this discussion. Because I was like what you should have done, John, is just take off all your clothes, go into the front yard, and lie in the sun for ten minutes, <laughs> and put on your clothes and go back in the house. Yeah. See, yeah. that's not the G-rated version of that uh, that story, though. The Boto Tan, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but that's clever. I, I give you, I give you points for thinking that that far ahead. Well, I wasn't, I wasn't as worried about the dishes, but the the cooler was like a, um, it was like one of those. And the inside, it it's a uh, um, it's a cooler, but on the outside, it's a cloth. It's a, it's not it's not a plastic. It wasn't a plastic. Okay. So I didn't want to like cut, that. I wanted to put outside because yeah. they may have used they were they wanted to take that to North Shore, but I was like, no, no, I don't want you taking that if I have been touching it and doing all kinds of stuff with it. You yeah. know, it'd be interesting, John, if you took a test now yeah. to see if you really had it or not. Is that something that's what possible? Like, test. Yeah, just to see. Yeah, the, I think. The thing about antibodies um, is that 40% of those who are asymptomatic don't have any antibodies. And so uh, it's really hard to judge. Yeah, if he, had, if he has antibodies, okay, yeah, he was exposed to it. But if he didn't have antibodies, it doesn't mean you weren't exposed. Oh, um, yeah. Damn, this, this tricky, tricky disease. I know. Yeah. yeah. So well, when I think that's, that's the part of us getting frustrated. Yeah, when it comes to immunity to this virus, we think there's a lot. Just the, there's two different arms. There's the there's the um, humoral arm or the antibody arm, and then there's also the um, innate immune system, which is uh, kind of like when these big bad cells just come and attack the virus itself. And so they're called they're usually called T cells. And so we think that the T cell response is is conveying much more of this long term immunity. Um, with the original SARS, you could get reinfected in um, possibly two years. With these benign coronaviruses, which there are four of them, you could get reinfected in eight to 12 weeks. And so we don't really know the answer. When you get infected once, can you get reinfected again? We don't know the uh, complete answer to that. Yeah, because there are people, there are places that are, they're seeing, right? People getting reinfected again. There's case reports, yeah, of like uh, somebody got sick um, and then they recovered and then a couple months later, their family member gets sick and then exposes them again, and they start developing symptoms again. Is their so symptoms weaker the, first, the second time around or stronger the second time around? Uh, generally weaker, but we don't, it's, it's so, there's not enough cases to really know. And this virus hasn't been around long enough for us to know quite yet. There's pockets of, say, London and New York and parts of Brooklyn where there's been such a high p- transmission and prevalence of this disease where they say they they're might be approaching herd immunity. Um, but I think that's a false safe haven in that um, herd immunity might not ever be achievable with this virus for a certain length of time, because we do know your immunity wanes. We don't know how quickly yet. And so Ken, like say, you know, all four of us may have immunity to it, but then at some point, Devin and Kyle's immunity may wane before, you know, John and my immunity, and then that exposes our whole group again. So. Yeah. So, so we don't, we don't, I wish we knew the answer to that and they're doing a lot of good work. We don't know yet. Obviously in your job right now, being in the ER, you see severe cases of COVID, right? And the majority of people, they, they come out of it. They don't die. They, they come out of it. 
But what is the long-term effects that you see from the, this thing as far as scarring in the lungs? or do you, what, do, what do you see long-term? Because I think a lot of people think, ah, I get them, I get sick, then I'm done, and I'm healthy. But there is a long-term effect from, from yeah, the from this disease, right? The Even worst, if it's high. Yeah, the worst thing that I can think of is that there's a lot of people who had that same mentality. They had the, they had the disease, and then they got a stroke. You know, or they got a heart attack, and these are thirty to forty-year-olds. You know, like nobody wants to get a stroke that young because, because this predisposes to that amount of inflammation and clotting. And then, like uh, um, young Cody, the bartender um, from Waikiki, like I mean, he's going to possibly be on oxygen for the rest of his life. Now he got really sick, and he's got no um, medical issues. Um, but there's other rates of, uh, and that's what they're really worried about when restarting the NFL is and other sports as well is um, there's high rates of something called myocarditis which is inflammation of the heart um, that can predispose to one heart failure so you'll never be able to kind of exercise or or, or do anything as active as you used to or it can predispose to death because it can create scar tissue and that scar t- tissue predisposed to fatal arrhythmias um, kidney failure um, this can even be something called neurotropic, meaning it actually infects the brain called encephalitis or, or the lining around the brain called meningitis. Um, as I mentioned, kidney failure. Um, and you could, uh, a lot of people are experiencing long-term brain fog, which is like the inability to actually think correctly or think critically. Some people have an increased rates of depression. The ones who get the sickest who are admitted to the ICU get a, um, ICU delirium, which is a combination of all the sedation medications they need to give you if you're getting on the ventilator. Um, and that can predispose to months and months of, of mood swings, as I mentioned, depression, uh, cognitive decline, um, lungs, lung scarring, as I, uh, you know, because this does cause massive inflammation in the lungs. So you could never be the same once you contract, contract this virus. So it's not something to take just, hey, you know, nonchalantly, lightly. And that's what's um, frustrating about um, my age group. I'm 35, and 20 to 39-year-olds represent the highest percentage of infections here in Hawaii. And so they're being the most careless. You know, they're gathering in the most groups. They're saying, yeah, I'm young and fearless. But what they're not uh, recognizing is this can really affect them long term. But also you're spreading it to the rest of the islands. So it's really important for our young people to not just – you know, the frontal lobes aren't developed yet. So we need to, like, you know, (laughs) insert that part for them. How do you feel about um, the kids going back to school and all in these times? I think it's throwing gasoline on the fire. Uh, I would wait. I personally would wait this whole semester. Uh, I would wait till January to see how things go. Um, We initially thought, and we think it's probably because, you know, those benign coronaviruses that I mentioned circulate so frequently. You know, they cause a third of the common colds throughout our globe. Um, that kids, you know, they routinely come, come home from school. This is pre-COVID era, you know, snotty or having a cough and they, you know, they just kind of brush it off. A lot of those viruses, um, you know, there's other viruses like adenovirus and um, rhinovirus, but a lot of those colds are the coronavirus and we think there's some transference of immunity. So we, we know that kids aren't getting affected and getting sick as sick in as frequency as adults. But we are now seeing that they are able to contract it and just like those asymptomatic spreaders, spread it, especially the 10 to 19-year-olds and even the 0 through 9-year-olds. And so how do you tell a 0 through 9-year-old – why am I saying 0 through 9-year-old? How do you tell a 
<laughs> How do you tell a you know a young kid to you know stay away from their friends when they see them? You know you you can't you can't. And so I think it's dangerous for one the students and dangerous for the teachers. So I would just not, I would. It's not, you know, I know distance learning is really hard and there's a certain, there's a lot of public schools where a huge proportion of those schools, those children depend on lunch uh, for, you know, one food. What are they going to be doing at home? Are they going to be safe at home? I know there's those huge issues. Um, I think we can combat that better than we can combat like a huge spike in, in, in cases. Because right now our, our, our economic health and then public health is tied to public health, you know, and so we need to take care of that, number one. How do we get people back into our tourist economy when our cases are going to flare up? And that's only what's going to happen if we get kids back to school. It's just going to cause cases to flare up again. Yeah, and I think uh, that was one thing that was interesting to note uh, is explaining to people that they're trying to blame it on the people who are coming here to vacation, like the tourists, the 2,000 people that are coming in, and I'm like, no, man, it's not them. It's yeah. us. Like we're yeah. doing it to ourselves. Yeah. Uh, that's the, I think that's the main thing that people need to understand. And that's the reason why we're telling people, this is why we're doing this lockdown. It's because it's not because the tourists are bringing it. It's because yeah. we have it and we're giving it to each other. Yeah. Yeah. And there's been a lot of mudslinging, you know, a lot of infighting and pointing fingers. Um, you know, I, I'm a big, I grew up playing a lot of team sports and, you know, um, something that I learned on the, uh, I was a, Fortunate to be uh, a medical officer for Hikianalia, the sister canoe for uh, Hokulea on the last leg from San Diego back to here. What I learned from um, Umu, uh, uh, Bruce Blankenfeld, our captain, um, is oh, that you know when when you, the shit's hitting the fan and you need to tie down a sail, you're not pointing fingers at who who let it go, you know. And that's what's happened. Like we're in the middle of a storm, you can't be pointing fingers. The, the, we're taking on water. You just got to do what you got to do, and like. Let's get more of a team and cooperative atmosphere. And I think that's what we're going to start seeing in the next week or two. It's like more people working together and collaborating rather than fighting and pointing fingers. Yes, you have to do that. But, okay, come on, let's get on. Let's, let's, let's work as a team here. And I think that's where Hawaii's response has been a bit dysfunctional is that there's a lot of conversations that are happening in separate silos where those should be overlapping Venn diagrams. I, I think my, my, my frustration with this, and I, I talked to Devin about this, is you know, you're right. Our, our, we're in one canoe. Yeah. Um, we're trying to hold it afloat with Hawaii people, you know, right now. 2,000 people coming in and jumping in that boat isn't going to help us, you know, in any way. And that's where my frustration is with this, with this issue of bringing tourists back here right now when we, we can't even sustain ourselves right now, you know. Sure. Yeah, unfortunately, there's no way to stop them because we are a state. There's just no legal way to stop yeah. people from coming. I and wish that's there the was. part, you know? Yeah, I wish there was. I agree with you. I wish there was. Like, what's the point in them coming here? Like, you guys can't go, you can't go anywhere. <laughs> what is the point? So I agree with you. Um, but predominantly, because they can't go anywhere, they're not spreading the virus. There's some, you know, people who are sneaking off here and there, but they're not getting, uh, you know, by far and large, not getting into our restaurants and our bars. Our bars are closed now, but they're having, at the moment, very little interaction with our community at large. That's not to say they didn't before pre-COVID area, and that's not to say that our, you know, bringing tourists back in, uh, that's a whole different issue of, of what the pre-test protocol and testing protocol here should be. But um, I agree with you that um, they shouldn't be coming, but you can't legally stop them at the moment. 
Oh, by the way, that, that leads to one other question uh, that we talked about offline before. But in terms of your personal ideas for a travel, a traveler's testing thing, yeah. I know we talked about it a little bit. Can you get into a little bit of that? Sure. What would your idea be for doing that? Yeah, I mean, we touched on this earlier, that one test, right? As we mentioned, one test isn't going to preclude you in the beginning parts of illness. It's not going to uh, definitely say that uh, you do not have this illness. And so I've heard uh, estimates saying one test is going to take out 70% of the possible infectiousness of coming to our islands. I would say 70% is still a too low of a number for me to be comfortable. You're still letting in 30% of infections. Um, you know, and it's hard enough to keep a lid of our own infections, right? Um, but because those numbers have failed to uh, take into consideration uh, those stats that I, that I gave earlier in our talk, that the first three days the test is useless. And it's only on day five or six that you start seeing some e efficacy. So say, you know, you take the test three days before your flight, that's day zero, say you came into the um, contact with the virus that day or sometime during that day, you take the test, uh, you're negative. By the time you get on the plane, you're still having no symptoms, right? You get through here to, the, uh, to Hawaii, you don't have a fever. And I would argue that nearly everybody who's gonna spend five grand for a family vacation or you know, something close to that, they're gonna spend five to $10 on a bottle of Tylenol and you know, fever is the uh, one of uh, it's not the most frequent uh, um, symptom to have in the beginning parts of this virus, and so that I think is an issue in itself. And so you're going to miss a whole lot all those people that are incubating in the early part of the disease if you do not test again. And so having at least another test, I would venture what the Bahamas are doing, and this is hard to operationalize because we don't have testing capacity with the PCRs, but we can definitely increase. Uh, lower sensitive sensitivity tests because we need to test just like as that pregnancy hormone increases we need to test frequently right try and catch it as it increases um, the bahamas are testing their tourists every three days so they they land they get another test every three days that they're in the bahamas they test again and so there's a lot of moving parts to operationalize that but just uh, i have heard no or seen or read any updates to that original testing protocol. And I would actually probably say that they stopped, um, they put the brakes on that testing protocol, the uh, Pacific Trans, um, Trans Flight Protocol, not because there was increasing infections in the mainland. Anybody with uh, knew that the mainland was just gonna keep bubbling and it's gonna continue bu to bubble until we get vaccinations. It's because they knew that, like, hey, look, one test isn't going to actually cut down the rates of infection enough. And so I, I do think there's a lot more movement towards that, and uh, I'm happy to hear that they're at least investigating it. Well, I think once they get this uh, saliva test going, that's going to be a game changer, yeah. huh? That will help. Um, and, you know, it cuts down on the reagents, and it's a lot easier to just spit in a cup than get that swab. And then you don't have to worry about, you know, one of the main bottlenecks is – getting enough of those swabs okay, so right if you can if you can scale that up and operationalize it or there's even technology where it's uh, i don't know if you guys have ever seen a urine dipstick it's basically just a piece of cardboard have you ever had a ph paper if you've ever tested yeah. the ph of uh, mm -hmm. r or pool or anything like that it looks like that and there's technology where you can just print out millions and millions of those little 
they come out in like little cardboard pieces and you can just cut them up into those little sticks and they're not quite as sensitive but if you print those out in the millions and then give it to them say like every, all the school age children and they're like hey look you spit in this cup and dip this thing in here and if it turns pink you have coronavirus don't go to school if it, if it doesn't turn pink you know stay home and these things are dirt cheap it's they're not quite as sensitive and that's why they're getting a lot of flack is that they're, they're not as, as sensitive as the PCR tests. But like I said, it's the testing frequency to catch right. that virus as it's going up that is important. Yeah, because I would spit in a cup every three days. If I could go <laughs> to the movies or something, you know, like, yeah. oh, you gotta, do you want to go see uh, Suicide Squad 2? You got to spit in the cup every three days till the movie come out or something like that. I would do that. <laughs> And then, and then on that note, the last the last element that they need to bring in, uh, I, I believe the Department of Health and there's other people who are developing this is contact tracing applications that make it much more efficient and uh, make contact tracing much more efficacious. And so it's it, you know it's more like a, a digital diary, and it's just logging where you've been in the last two weeks. I don't really remember where I was five days ago, six days ago, even three days ago, and it's you know it's just logging data on your phone and uh, just a location and so when the contact tracer calls you you pull it up and you're like oh yeah so i was here who did you come in contact with this oh john kyle and you know a couple other family members um where were you the next day oh, i was here i was at mcdonald's which mcdonald's and then they can start alerting that mcdonald's and so it makes it much more efficient and more acts as a memory tool and so those have been, for whatever reason, um, delayed more than I'd like to see, but they're, they're in the pike here for Hawaii. You know, almost every country in the Euro European Union has them. South Korea has a really rigorous one where they actually put out your name. You know, that's... Wow. <laughs> <laughs> if you test positive, they actually send to the app, like, you know, so-and-so tested positive. And so that's a huge violation. So ours aren't that big brother. Dang, uh, yeah, yeah. A lot of people think it's like big brother, but... But apps like Google Maps and Waze and all of our GPS services are actually transferring data. They're actually more, they're more data violating than a contact tracing app is. Because that's, it's just a contact tracing app is just logging on your phone. It's just a diary on your phone. You know, we had a segment with Jill, um, like a scared straight segment for our um, <laughs> thousands of listeners that we have on this podcast. Uh, hundreds, more like hundreds. Oh yeah, hundreds, okay. <laughs> but, um, well, well, we'll do that, and then we'll let. I feel bad. Doctor O'Connell's been with us for over an hour, so okay. We'll, um, we'll end. We'll end with a scared straight segment. Yeah. <laughs> so, Doctor Jill talked about um, what it's like to be on a ventilator. You know, I don't think the general public really knows the how how it's you know administered and with the, and the problems that you get from being on it. Is there anything else that the public and us guys should be aware of when we do see you for? and we do contact COVID, is there something that we really don't want to look forward to that you're going to be administering to us? Yeah, yeah, sure. So if you get sick enough to be on a ventilator, you also have to have these big IVs, like um, these medications that we give to one sedate you or possibly increase your blood pressure. They can't be given through the normal IVs just in the arms or in the hand. We actually have to put these big central lines. They're like big, thick guys. And I usually insert them through the big jugular veins of your neck. And so I'll, I'll be poking your neck um, and uh, inserting this big IV that's probably about that long. So it goes all the way down. I'll do it on this side. It goes all the way down and into your heart. And so uh, I'll either do it there or I'll do it in your femoral um, vein, which is a big vein that 
feeds uh, or actually returns all the blood from your leg. And so um, it's, 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 we give you numbing medication before you get it, but it's a big, so it's almost like this thick, you know, going down oh, into your, into your heart. So, so you don't want to have that if you can avoid it either um, on top of a ventilator. Good to know. Is that, is that scaring you straight enough? Okay. I'm always scared, but I think you know, people need to know what, what it's really like. Oh, oh, one other one. You guys ever had a, a catheter before, a Foley catheter? Oh, no, I haven't. No. No, <laughs> I don't know what that is. Now, that's yeah. also about this thick, and it goes up your urethra, yeah. your bladder, and so that's not fun either. But there's a condom one too, right, you can use? Yeah, yeah, not as accurate and predisposed to infections, so usually, usually we'll go for this one. <laughs> Damn. Okay. Can, Can I request the condom one though? Yeah. No. <laughs> I, I, that might be, you could request, you could try before, you, you maybe think about something else, but you can try and request. And actually, if you're in the, if you're in and you have to get a, a catheter done, you're in pretty bad shape. So you're not really going to be going, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> True. True. Okay. So to summarize, Dr. O'Carroll, um, wear the mask, wash your hands. No raves, yeah, no, no uh, huge parties. Voto tan. Voto tan. Yeah, and Voto tan. <laughs> so, so, I mean, if, if all of us just do that, I mean, you know, it's not for forever, right? Because uh, at some point, we should have some medications or something supposedly coming online. But if everyone could just buckle down and just do this for now, we can reassess and, and um, you know, it, it'll be a big help, right? Absolutely. Um, where we don't want to slide is back to the direction that we've been sliding, right? Our economies, our restaurants are on verge of possibly closing. We don't want that to happen. We want to keep our cases low so our kids can eventually go back to school so we can welcome the tourists that, um, you know, it's a whole other issue, but welcome the tourists that uh, need, are needed to fuel our economy at the moment. And so the more we do to protect and think of our communities, think of this as, as one big canoe that we all need to take care of and we only have play a part, the better we'll offer Okay, Kyle, you good? I'm good. Is there anything else you want to tell our listeners before we go? No, no, that's good. I think that we've taken up enough of their time. And uh, uh, be well, everyone. We want to meet your dog. <laughs> yeah, he's over there. I, he, he, I'm boring to him right now. So. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for doing this. We really appreciate it. And yeah, uh, when I saw you come on, I thought, oh yeah, this is, uh, I, I know who this is. And uh, yeah, it's good stuff. We really appreciate it. Hopefully, maybe we'll check back in with you when, um, in a few weeks and when you see what happens between now and uh, September. Anytime, guys. Always welcome. Doctor, and Dr. Jill will be very proud of you. Oh. Oh. <laughs> I'm only using her guidance. So. <laughs> okay, thanks, guys. We'll see you later. Bye, guys. Have a good evening. Yeah.